Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today, Come Follow Me is going to cover Genesis 37 through 41. Now, just a note, there are some chapters that are skipped in Come Follow Me. We are going to talk about those. But before we get started, Bryce, why don't you talk about the main point of these sections in the Come Follow Me chapters of Genesis? Now, this is a story that you know. This is Joseph struggling with his brethren. He gets sold into Egypt, Potiphar's house, the prison, Pharaoh, the dreams, and then Joseph becomes second in command. This is probably one of the best-known portions of the Old Testament. This is a great example of the practical everyday living of the covenant in our family situation, because a lot of these brothers are going to struggle in living up to the gospel ideals while Joseph is going to stand out. Joseph will live the covenant, and Joseph is going to be prospered by the covenant. So if people wonder, well, why does the Abrahamic covenant matter today? It's simply, if you live the covenant rise above worldly behavior and are different from the world. If you influence the world rather than let the world influence you, if you make the Lord's name known by your example, then the Lord blesses and prospers you. In chapter 2 of 1 Nephi, we see Lehi simply teaching a great summary of the Abrahamic covenant when he says in verse 20, Inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper and shall be led. There's a summary of the Abrahamic covenant. If you live the gospel covenant, a good example for the world to see, and you're not taking the thread of the world. If you keep the commandments, you will be prospered and led. Now, that's Joseph in Egypt. We're about to see a big chunk of time compressed into a small little summary, so it's easier to see the blessings of the Lord when you do that. Sometimes in our day-to-day lives, we don't really see the daily blessings of the Lord and how He is prospering us and leading us. But the reality is, He is there in our lives helping us. If we keep the covenant, we are prospered and led. Now, Lehi goes on to say, Inasmuch as thy brethren shall rebel against thee. So if instead of influencing the world, you are influenced by the world, listen to the consequences of not doing so. In verse 21 of 1 Nephi 2, he says, you'll be cut off from the presence of the Lord. In verse 22, he talks about being ruled over, meaning others will have more of an influence over you. You've lost that influencing power. And then in verse 23, he says, you'll have no power. Now think about how this is going to apply to Esau. And now in today's chapters, it's going to apply to Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah. We're going to see Reuben struggle with the law of chastity. We're going to see Levi and Simeon in a rage slaughter the Hivites where there just doesn't seem to be justification for doing that. Well, I would say there's good reason for them to be angry, but they did take it too far. Yeah. 
But boy, here we have Simeon and Levi raging, and they just slaughter Shechem and a large group of his townsfolk. And then we've got Judah, this whole chapter on Judah and Tamar, and you realize, what are you thinking, Judah? That is not how we live the gospel covenant. And then you kind of just see these blessings lost. They are ruled over. They will have to go down to Egypt and get bread from Joseph. They are ruled over. They have no power, and they are cut off. While Joseph, we're going to see, is prospered and led. Now, does that mean everything is just perfect in Joseph? I mean, he's sold into slavery. He goes to Potiphar's house. He goes to prison. It doesn't necessarily mean everything's always positive, but it does mean that the Lord will be with us, and he will prosper us, and he will lead us. So there's just a brief summary of today's chapters as we watch these brothers live or not live the covenant of the gospel. We're going to see that struggle and Joseph's prosperity. I really like that overview. And I think, Bryce, that Joseph is a really good model for just being consistent. There's something to be said about being a Latter-day Saint in today's world. There's so much discontent and so much strife and there's something about just keeping your eye on the Savior and just being steady. And that's kind of how I see Joseph. He is so steady, yep. and he could be saying, where is God? Or he could easily slip into the culture of Egypt. He could easily turn into, well, I'm, you know, when in Egypt, do what the Egyptians do. But he doesn't. He He's like this model example of just steadiness. I love that you bring that up because it reminds me of in Alma 37, where they're talking about what happened with the Liahona. Here's kind of the negative. They were slothful. They forgot. Therefore, the marvelous work ceased, and they didn't progress in their journey, right? They wandered. Then in the very next verse, it says they tarried, they didn't travel in a direct course, and they were afflicted with hunger. That's kind of that lost, right, wandering. You don't travel in a direct course. Now, if we turn that around, like Joseph is going to be consistently faithful, which means marvelous works will come into our life and we will progress in our journey. It doesn't mean everything's great, but we progress and we move forward in a direct course. That's a great description of Joseph, Mike. I think that's really good. I like that. I think that's important. So now what we're going to do, before we get into chapters 37 through 41, we're going to briefly look at what was skipped in Come Follow Me. And, and I understand it. We're going to see a lot of this, aren't we, Bryce, where the people that have put together the Come Follow Me program are trying to present a way that we can give lessons in our family. We're not going to be able to cover every chapter. And Bryce and I are not going to go sequentially chapter by chapter of all the chapters in the Old Testament. But since these chapters, in our opinion, are pretty important, we're going to look at some of these things. And so 34, 35, and 36 are chapters that are that are missed. And 34 is that chapter that you talked about, Bryce, about how they're living in Shechem, and Shechem, the son of Hamar the Hivite, comes and, quote, defiles Dinah. Now, Dinah is the daughter of Jacob, and she is assaulted by Shechem. And her brothers come up with a plot to get revenge, essentially. I mean, chapter 34 is about revenge. This is clearly a, a story of tension and strife and violence, and Levi and Simeon are the brothers that are going to do this. Verse 7 talks about that they're wroth, and then verse 5 is an important verse. 
in verse 5, it tells us that Jacob held his peace. Clearly, Jacob has a reason to be angry, but we also need to take off our modern lenses and realize that Jacob is outnumbered. There is no police force. There is no courts to settle this. And so I'm sure, as any father would be, that Jacob is enraged at this violation and the things that have happened to his daughter. But at the same time, they have his daughter. And so he's got to find a way to negotiate. He's going to get all the information. I think there's a lot in there about the wisdom of sitting down and not immediately responding when something bad happens. He holds his peace. He counts to 10. Yeah, exactly. It's that I'm not going to react in the passion of the moment. I'm not going to let the emotions of this moment, where I often say things I don't mean and do things I shouldn't do, and I'm going to regret later. I'm going to wait a moment, let that passion, let that rage, let those emotions subside, and then I'll react more rationally. Yeah. So after Dinah is taken... The men of Shechem come together, and Shechem offers an arrangement whereby he marries Dinah. And throughout the narrative, it's described in the plural as a union of two tribes or two clans. Let us be brought together into this arrangement. So while it's an individual that's done this violation, this horrible act, Shechem, by marrying Dinah, is offering peace between the two tribes. And yet, Simeon and Levi say, well, we can't do this unless you guys are circumcised. And so everyone that lives in Shechem, these people that are not of Israel, get circumcised, and that's in verse 24. And then in verse 25, when they are sore, when these men are in a weakened condition, Simeon and Levi go into the city, and verse 25 tells us that they, quote, slew all the males. They kill everyone. They slew Hamar and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword, and they took Dinah out of Shechem. So they basically kill everybody. Now, and they spoil the city. They take all yeah, their goods. They take all their stuff. Now, I will say this. In their defense, and I'm not justifying their actions, but in their defense, the negotiations for marriage are taking place when Dinah is held by the people of Shechem. They don't even let her free, and they never acknowledge that they did anything wrong. And so there's this tension because she's kind of held for ransom, like they're holding her. But the bottom line is Simeon and Levi kill the guys, like you said, Bryce, they take all this stuff. So Jacob tells Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me. Their response in verse 31 is, should he deal with our sister as a harlot? And that question is rhetorical. It hangs there to show that that's how Simeon and Levi justified their actions. They clearly saw this violation as a horrible thing and collectively looked at the people of Shechem that they all had to die, or at least all the males had to die. And so they took vengeance because of this action against their sister. While they felt justified, the question remains. Perhaps they took this too far. And so I think, Bryce, I like how you talked about this in the introduction. These chapters are going to illustrate the behavior of Joseph's brothers in a negative light. Now, in scholarship, there's this contention that 34, the entire chapter, is juxtaposed with chapter 33 of Genesis, verses 18 through 20. And those verses, those three verses, are the Northern's perspective that they purchased the land and everything's peachy. And in scholarship, chapter 34 is written from the Southern perspective. And the reason why is because this denigrates the Northern tribes. Remember, for the bulk of Israel's history, we have this North-South tension. And both these stories, the North and the South, were eventually brought together in the Bible. To me, that's important to know why this is in here. We're denigrating the Northern tribes. Now, what I love about 34, I think 
part of me wishes this had been in Come Follow Me is it shows that Jacob clearly understood his responsibility with the covenant. Jacob understood that his job was to influence the world and save the world. And he says, because of what you've done, I can't do that. So he says in verse 30, you have troubled me to make me to stink among the inhabitants of the land. I can't influence them when now my reputation is kind of being a bully. Yep. I'm not a servant, I'm a bully. It's kind of like what Alma says to his son Corianton. He says, when they saw your conduct, they would not believe my words. That shows that Jacob gets his responsibility to be an influence. I'm not living on an island here. I am supposed to influence all these people around me. And sons, you've now made that more difficult because of what you've just done. I also understand why it's not in Come Follow Me, because frankly, this is a difficult chapter. It is. It's hard to swallow. 35. 35 is full of a lot of repeats of the vision of Jacob where he is meeting an individual and he's getting his name changed again. Now in Genesis 35, this chapter does have God appearing to Jacob. It's very clear. If you look in verse 9, God appeared unto Jacob. Verse 10, God said unto him, thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. And then verse 11, God said unto him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai, be fruitful and multiply. Now, one thing I want to throw in there, Mike, is back in 32, where the angel changes his name, the angel says, hey, what is your name? And Jacob says, Jacob. Oh, well, it will no longer be Jacob. I just There's no way that is how it played out. An angel would know what his name is. And so I think it plays out better here where God doesn't have to ask for his name. He says, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Yeah, it's definitely what I call messy. Uh, In scholarship, they usually say 35 is just a mix. It's like that Neapolitan ice cream where there's all these different flavors. Chapter 35 is a combination of J, E, and P. But these verses 9 through 15 are coming from the priestly author. That's why we have El Shaddai speaking. And we talked about El Shaddai back with Genesis 17. We're going to talk about El Shaddai next week when we get into the Testament of Jacob, because El Shaddai's name will be invoked to give fertility blessings to specifically Joseph. But those verses 9 through 15 are from a different tradition. So this chapter, this part of the chapter at least, is a repeat. Now, there are some things in Genesis 35 that are not repeated that are skipped. One of them, I think this is a big one, is the birth of Benjamin. Verse 18 says, it came to pass that as her soul was in departing, this meaning Rachel, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is in Bethlehem. And so what we have here is what I'm going to call steps of sadness. We have this name change, We have the death of Rachel, and this is a big deal to Jacob. He loved her. We don't have a great detail in here after her death, but in the show notes, we have some really good insight onto Rachel and her tomb that you might want to read about if that interests you. He really did build up a massive monument to his wife to set up a pillar that, as the text says, is still here today. And I'm clearly, they're writing this chapter many years later. Right, right. Which meant he really mourned for her loss. Yeah. 
One more great insight into this chapter, and I think this is a great example for those of us who are striving either to get into the temple in the first place, or maybe to get back to the temple after a while, or even on a daily basis, I'm going to the temple today. In the beginning of chapter 35, Jacob is told, arise and get thee to Bethel. Now, that's where Jacob saw the ladder and called it the house of God. So, arise and get thee to the temple. So, he says to his people, he says to his family, put away the strange gods that are among you. Now, do you remember that whole story about Rachel stealing from Laban some of his mementos, so to speak? And he says to his family, put away the strange gods that are among you and be clean and change your garments. And I think that's the spirit of going to the temple. Put off the world. So Jacob takes those little items. He takes the idols and he buries them under the oak. Now, unfortunately, sometimes we come out of the temple and we unbury them and put them back on. But the idea is, I want to get more out of the house of God. I want to meet God in his house. So I take the world off of me. I change my clothes and I wear my very best in there. And I try to be as clean as I can. And I take off the world's thoughts. I take off the world's attitudes. And I go in and I meet with my heavenly father in the temple. And my encouragement to you would be after you come out of the temple, leave those things buried under the tree. Don't go back and dig them up. Leave them buried under the tree. The more we go to the temple and we try to shed ourselves of worldliness and worldly thoughts and worldly attitudes, the more we can purify ourselves. Don't dig them up after you come out of the temple and go back to your normal worldly life. Let the temple have made an influence on you and keep them buried. I like that. I think that's important. There's a tough thing in this chapter, and it's fragmentary, but it's verse 22. Verse 22 of Genesis 35 has a really tough message. And this is where Reuben, he's the oldest son of Jacob, it says he went in and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard it, and then it just says, and now the sons of Jacob were 12. We just drop it right just, there. It, the story's dropped. Now, this is another example of the brothers losing status in history. So we've talked about Levi and Simeon and now Reuben. Now, the Bible doesn't really get into this, but there's a lot of information in extra-biblical literature. And one of the pieces of literature I want to cite is what's called the Testament of Reuben. We're putting this in the slides so you can see it but I'm going to kind of sum it up. In the Testament of Reuben, this is Reuben giving advice. And in the Testament of Reuben, he talks about this, how this was an iniquity, that this was something that he's very ashamed of when he lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. But what's interesting in the Testament of Reuben is there's this message that the father forgave him and that Reuben changed his behavior. And also there's another text called the Book of Jubilees. This is another version of this story. And in the Book of Jubilees, the author of that text makes it so Bilhah is actually not at fault at all. And Reuben takes the blame. And so what we see in these extra biblical texts are ways to fill in the gaps of Genesis. Because clearly, this is a big story, and verse 22 just mentions it and then drops it. So I think what I'm trying to emphasize is that the Old Testament has gaps, but some of these gaps are filled 
with other texts that we don't have in Genesis. And Reuben is, there's got to be a lot to this story. This is a sad story. He makes a mistake. But when Joseph is sold into Egypt, it was Reuben who defended him. It was Reuben who sought to save him and reclaim him and take him back to his father. And so there's got to be something in this older brother um, looking out for my younger brother. There's certainly an element of goodness here, but there's also a tragic act. And so I'd love to know someday more of the story of Reuben. Yeah, I think what you just said, Bryce, really ties into this line from the Testament of Reuben. So this is the line that I really want to emphasize. After his father finds out that he did this, he says, My father comforted me much and prayed for me unto the Lord, that the anger of the Lord might pass from me, even as the Lord showed. And thenceforth, until now, I have been on my guard and sinned not. He talks about this in the Testament of Reuben, about how when it comes to chastity, we must be on our guard and we must be careful. And so I find that really interesting. I wish that was in the Bible, but it isn't. But that's why I'm reading it, because I'm like, I think this is an important part, an important aspect of this story. Now, the 36th chapter is genealogical information about the descendants of Esau. I think maybe the the thing I would emphasize is that we're talking about the descendants of Esau. If you go to verse 31, these are the kings that reigned in Edom. And if you go to the end of chapter 36, he is Esau, the father of the Edomites. So what we're doing is we're talking about our neighbors. It's an etiological story telling us where the Edomites came from, and they came from Abraham. They came from his line because Esau descends from that tree. And then we get to the 37th chapter. And this is the story of Joseph being sold into Egypt. And many people believe that this text is actually two versions of the same story, just told from different authors. You see, it's two traditions about Joseph being taken and sold. And so we've actually color-coded this for you, and you can see it, and you can read the two stories individually and see that they're spliced together, and they're from two traditions. The tradition where Reuben is the good guy is written by the North, because Reuben was a Northern tribe. And you guessed it, the part where Judah is the good guy is written from the South. And so this is a combination of what we call J and E, and they're stitched together. We have in one part of the text, the Ishmaelites taking him to Egypt. And in another part of the text, we have the Midianites taking him in. We have one part of the text saying that Judah said, what profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Let us sell him. That's Judah. But then we have Reuben defending him, as Bryce talked about, a different brother in verse 22 that said, let us shed no blood, but let us cast him into the pit. Now, what's interesting is in one text, he's brought up out of a pit, and in another text, he's sold. And so we've actually color-coded this for you, and you can see it, and you can read the two stories individually and see that they're spliced together, and they're from two traditions. And to me, this is very clear if you see it. So we leave it to you to decide if you want to go and read that and look at that for yourself. But the big story from this chapter is that Joseph is taken. He's taken from his father. Now, there are some really interesting puns in here I do want to mention. One of them is in verse 14, and it's also in verse 4. There's some really interesting things here. So in verse 4, it says, And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, They hated him, and they could not speak peaceably unto him. Uh, That word, they could not speak peaceably, that word is shalom. And that's this idea where literally it's, please go and see the shalom of your brothers. I find this fascinating as the brothers could not speak shalom to Joseph. So if you look in verse 14, look what it says there. 
This is the father talking to Joseph. Go, I pray thee, and see whether it be well with thy brethren and well with the flocks. And again, that's that word of shalom. Go see if your brothers are shalom. And that's that word that can be translated as peace, but more literally it means to be whole and complete or safe or safe and sound. It's derived from the word shalom, which means to be whole. And this is code for being a visionary man. Now, I think this is important because this is not in the text, what I'm about to say, but it's in the extra-biblical literature. I believe that Joseph is a shalom. He is a whole person, and this is code for being a visionary man. Joseph is a visionary man. In scholarship, they don't put Joseph in with the patriarchs because in the book of Genesis, he's not having visions. He's not seeing God. And they're very clear to say that Joseph is not part of the patriarchs because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're seeing God. They're doing things with altars and trees and having these sacred experiences. And their contention is that Joseph isn't. And they're right if you read Genesis 37 through 50. But my contention is that he is. I'm going to use some other sources to try to bolster that argument. But I see that right there in those words that he is a shalom. He is a whole individual. Now, look at verse 3. Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. And I like that in the footnote where it says the Greek text indicates many colors, but the Hebrew term may indicate simply a long coat with sleeves. Now, we've got the translation right in the show notes. You can read the Septuagint translation, and as I've studied Greek and as I've read stuff in Iliad and Aeschylus and those things, the Septuagint's going to say katona poikilon. Poikilon can mean variegated or of various sorts, but it can also mean of various colors. But if you read the Iliad book five, I've even got it linked in the show notes, line 735, poikilon is used to describe Athena's robe, and it's translated in many translations as richly embroidered. And if you read Aeschylus's stuff on Agamemnon, there's this use of poikilon as tapestries, And so I think it could be read either way is what I'm saying, but I think that finely embroidered is probably a better translation. Now, Hugh Nibley's done a lot of work on this, and now he's reading the Hebrew where he says, ketonet pasim, it's not a garment of many colors at all, but that it's a garment that has marks in it. And then Hugh Nibley says, this garment belonged to Abraham and is already, it's had a long history. Its history was lengthy because it went back to the Garden of Eden. That's the garment. It's the only one. Just as we treat the story of Cain and Abel, we trivialize this. We say, Joseph was the youngest kid, so his father favored him and gave him a pretty garment of many colors. There's no mention in any ancient source of a garment of many colors. That's an invention of modern editors trying to explain it. But here it was the garment he gave him. It was the garment of the priesthood. So he talks about this extensively, and you can go and read the rest of this stuff in the show notes. But the point that I want to make is poikilon can be read as variegated or of various sorts or also very finely embroidered. So I think Hunibli has a point. I think that this idea that the Greek word indicates many colors in the footnote I think that that can be massaged a little bit. I would probably back away from that and look at this as a specific garment that's for Joseph that has marks in it. Now, Mike, that's why I like the Hebrew 
version that indicates it was a long coat with sleeves, which kind of evokes that image of Jacob covered Joseph. Like Adam and Eve were covered in the coats of skins. He was wrapped in the atonement. He was wrapped in the blessings of the covenant. It seems to me that Jacob could recognize that Joseph was the one that was standing above the others to live the covenant. And Jacob is wrapping Joseph in the blessings of the covenant. And that might be what caused the jealousy with his brothers. I really like that. I also just want to acknowledge the ambiguity going on. It would help if we had more information. That's why I'm going to the Greek, and then I'm going to the way Homer's using the word. If we read how Homer's using it, I think it helps. Now, is the Greek person who speaks and reads Hebrew that's translating this text in the third century, are they using this word the way Homer is? And that's where I'm like, I just don't know. I sit in the space of not knowing, but I like what Hugh Nibley's doing with it, and I see Athena's robe in the Iliad being described not as a coat of many colors, but as this beautiful garment that has this embroidery in it. And so you decide. So now I want to introduce an idea that is not in the book of Genesis. This is in the legends of the Jews. You see, in legend, Joseph has a stone. It's a sacred stone, and it was given to him by his father. In the mythic tradition, the Zohar was a sacred stone that passed from Adam to his descendants. And if you remember, we talked about this briefly when we talked about the flood narrative. In Genesis 6, verse 16, footnote A, the window to the ark, that was the verse where there's this legend that there was this stone that was passed down to the 10th patriarch, which was Noah, but originally Adam had it. You see, in legend, Adam is so sad when he leaves the Garden of Eden. And he's so depressed and not to wax too Tolkien-esque, but it kind of reminds me of when Frodo gets the even star from Galadriel. And she says, this will be a light that will shine in dark places. And he uses it in the pit of despair when Shelob attacks him. And that's kind of how I see this, this stone that he's given. And so, like I said, this is not in the scriptures. This is in the legends. But the idea is that Adam gives it to Seth on his deathbed, and it passes from Seth all the way down to Noah. And then finally, before Joseph's cast into the pit... Jacob gives it to Joseph. And this is what's interesting, is in the legend, the brothers don't take it because Joseph wore it as an amulet, that there was a hole through the stone. Now, I don't know how that hole got there, but he he wore it as an amulet, and they don't see it. Myth tells us that Jacob had the stone when he had the dream of the ladder, and that the stone saved Joseph from the snakes when his brothers threw him into the pit. And then later, the legend says that he put the stone in the cup that he hid in Benjamin's sack, and it was in the cup because Joseph used it when he was in prison. He used it to divine the dreams. This is right out of Genesis 44, verse 5. Is not this it in which my Lord drinketh, and whereby he divineth? Genesis 44, 5. That cup with the precious stone in it was placed inside Joseph's coffin at the time of his death, and it remained there until Moses took Joseph's coffin and was told in a dream to take the glowing stone and hang it in the tabernacle, where it became known as Ner Tamid, the eternal light. And that is why even to this day, an eternal light burns above every ark of the Torah in every synagogue. Now, that's fascinating stuff. The book that I'm going to reference is a book by a man by the name of Howard Schwartz, and it's called Tree of Souls, The Mythology of Judaism. We're going to put the whole bit in the show notes. We're going to link page 86 and 87. I'm just going to type it all up if you're interested in this stuff. 
Now, how much of that is myth and how much of that is true? That's where I say, I don't know. But I think the Joseph Smith translation opens up this idea that Joseph of Egypt was a seer. And then you have 2 Nephi 3, where we know on the brass plates, there's this story that Joseph of Egypt was a mighty seer. So now we have a guy named Joseph. He has a stone and he's a seer and none of that's in the Bible. So what does that tell us about the Bible? Well, our tradition certainly has a lot to say about that, right? Yeah. In one of our restoration additions to Scripture, Abraham chapter 3 clearly says, I, Abraham, had the Urim and Thummim, which the Lord my God had given unto me. So Abraham clearly has a Urim and Thummim, and it would make sense that he would pass that to Isaac and Isaac to Jacob and Jacob to Joseph. We know that the Book of Mormon mentions that King Mosiah had interpreters or a Urim and Thummim, and he used that to translate languages. Remember when Ammon shows up and talks to Limhi in chapter 8 of Mosiah? And Limhi says, is there anyone back home that can interpret languages because he'd found the 24 gold plates of the Jaredites? Yes, I can assuredly tell you that there's someone back home. He has these interpreters. He can look and see. And so the tradition is live and well in Latter-day Saint literature that the ancients had Urim and Thummim. Yeah, so lights and perfections. We know that the brother of Jared had one, and that dates back to the Tower of Babel. So clearly Adam had one. I think the tradition is well enough established in the Restoration that it would obviously hold true that Joseph of Egypt would have a Urim and Thummim. So the pattern to me is just astounding. Joseph has a stone. He is a seer. Joseph, in the latter days, has a stone and is a seer. And I think that's what Lehi caught in Second Nephi chapter 3. He really saw the connection between those two Josephs as seers. Well, the right of a seer is to look and see. So to me, this tradition you're speaking of, Mike, really does match a lot of what's in our literature, what's in the Book of Mormon, what's in the Pearl of Great It's like breathing in our history. It is breathing in our history. It's just so cool. So the ancient Joseph may very well have used the Urim and Thummim to interpret Pharaoh's dream. The modern Joseph used the Urim and Thummim to translate the Book of Mormon. I just think this is something we ought to shout I kind of wish everybody that is denigrating the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints because of our history knew more about these kinds of things. And so I'm grateful that we have this forum to talk about this in the podcast. And I'm grateful, frankly, for Howard Schwartz for bringing this to light. Um, Howard Schwartz does not know our tradition. I don't think he knows anything about the Latter-day Saints. He's just writing the mythology of Judaism, and he's writing this to try to add background to those that that believe in the Bible, and I think this sits squarely in our tradition. I think this is beautiful stuff. So my argument is going to be that Joseph has a stone, and very simply, I just want to state this. This is not in Genesis, but it's in the backstory, and it's in the puns, a three-level pun, and the, the word is Sohar. The stone that he's going to have is a Zohar. Now, I'm going to say Sohar, but you can also say Zohar, and you can also say Zohar. The prison where he's put in, that's going to be called Hasohar. And the other word we're going to talk about is the feast. And the feast is going to be a Zohar. Now, 
next time when we talk about the end of Genesis, it's going to say that Joseph and his brethren eat at noonday, and that's Zohar. Now, the word Zohar means splendor or brightness or brilliance. And so when he has the feast at noonday, the idea is, well, what's the most bright part of the day? Well, that's that word. That's Zohar. He's going to be cast in the prison. That is Ha-Zohar, the prison. And he's going to have this stone, this precious stone, this Zohar. This is in the legends of the Jews. And by the way, just because I see this wordplay doesn't mean I'm right. This is kind of my reading of this. But, you know, decide for yourself. Okay, so now let's go to 38 because, Bryce, this is a foil, isn't it? It is. We're going to foil Judah with Joseph. You notice it, it kind of doesn't fit the timeline. We are selling Joseph into Egypt. Chapter 39 is clearly the extension of that story with Joseph in Potiphar's house. And so where does 38 get thrown in and why? So now we get this story of Judah, which is considerably in the future, but it's a foil. We're going to contrast Judah's lack of fidelity with Joseph's. Joseph is faithful to God. He's faithful to Potiphar. And Judah just seems to be so easily deceived and pulled into something that was not appropriate. And so if you're wondering where 38 came from, you got to hold on, read 38, and then in your frustration about Judah, now read 39, and you'll see exactly why they're put together. Now, notice how often the Book of Mormon foils. We've got Nephi foiled with Laman. We've got King Benjamin foiled with King Noah. We've got Moroni foiled with Amalickiah. It's a very common writing technique when you say, let's show you the downfall of one right next to the rise of another. So that's kind of the story of 38. It's a little hard and frustrating to read that someone that you would expect greatness from because he's an ancestor of Christ. This is Judah from which we get the tribe of Judah that produces King David and Jesus. And yet, Boy, Judah just does not come out smelling very well in this chapter. He struggles. I want to just throw this in there. Go look at Genesis 38, 1 and 2. It came to pass at that time that Judah went down from his brethren and turned to a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira, and Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her, and he went in unto her. Now, we just kind of skip over this. But one of the points I try to make when we talk about Genesis is that there's this push against the Canaanites. We don't want to be like them, and yet we have Judah marrying a Canaanite. Now, why do I think that's important? I think that there's this untold story or this unwritten part of the Bible that the Israelites are connected to Canaan. And I think if we get into the history of the Canaanite religion, especially in the Ugaritic texts that have shown up since 1928, and there's a lot of stuff on this, the religion of the Canaanites is very closely associated with the Israelite religion. So I'm just drawing that out as a historical reference, as a cultural reference, especially in the light of all the texts that say don't marry the Canaanites. Judah, who's the father of the Davidic dynasty, the kings of Judah, there's some Canaanite blood in there. I'm just drawing that out. Now, in this story, Judah has a couple of sons, and they die, and they don't bear seed. Tamar is one of the daughters-in-law of Judah. Her husband died, and she's upset because she's destitute. And the Levitical law of marriage is that the widowed daughter-in-law should marry the oldest remaining brother. But Judah does not give her one of his sons for her to marry. 
Tamar is actually upset at Judah for not doing that with the third brother. Yeah. It was like the expectation. If my husband dies, you're supposed to give me to another brother so that I could raise up seed. So there's the expectation, even from Tamar. Yeah. And then in verses 12 through 26, Tamar takes matters into her own hands. She dresses as a harlot, and she goes to a place where she knows Judah will be, and she kind of knows who he is, meaning she knows his character, and then they bargain for the price of her services. And he says, you know, I'll give you a kid from the flock. And what's interesting, and, and this is I find fascinating, is there's this thread woven through the book of Genesis associated with deception and a kid from the flock. I mean, we have this in the deception of the blessing of Jacob and Esau. We're going to see it here. And we also saw it in the last chapter, in the 37th chapter of Genesis, where they bring this coat and it's soaked in blood. And it says in verse 31, they took Joseph's coat and they killed a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood. And so I think that this is a thread. There seems to be something associated with this idea of deception and the kid. And so she pledges, or they pledge, that that's the payment, but then he doesn't have the wherewithal to pay. He doesn't have the kid. And so she says, well, what are you going to give me as a pledge? That's chapter 38, verse 17. She wants some collateral. Yeah, what's the collateral? And he says, here's my signet and my bracelets and my staff. And he gave it to her, and he came in unto her, and she conceived. Now she's with child. He leaves, and she never shows up to get the payment. And then a while later, verse 24 says, three months later, they come to Judah, and they say, your daughter-in-law. She's pregnant. She's pregnant. And then he gets all full of religious indignation. At the end of verse 24, he says, bring her forth that she be burnt. Such hypocrisy here from Judah. Totally. And she comes to him and says, well, let me tell you who the dad is. The person who owns the signet bracelets and staff is the father. And Judah, verse 26, says, oh, my goodness, I'm the father. And then she has been more righteous than I, he says, because I gave her not Sheila, my son, and he knew her again no more. Now, that's reminiscent of the Testament of Reuben, this idea that, okay, this mistake was made, but he changed his ways. And then twins were born, and Peretz is the one that I want to talk about. That's the end of verse 29, it says Pharaoh in the King James, and the other one was Zara. And this is another example, beauty for ashes. This is where God can take a tragic story and turn it into something beautiful. You see, Peretz is the ancestor of the tribe of Judah, and he is the ancestor of Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, we read that he is an ancestor of King David and eventually Jesus. And so Jesus Christ, the Savior of the universe, his lineage comes through this tragic story. Once again, we have beauty for ashes. We have a way of reading the Bible in a way that we see something horrible, but something great can come out of it. And I think that's a lot like our mortal lives. We live in this world of chaos, and God knows that it's going to be difficult. And there's a lot of tragedy. I want to acknowledge the tragedy of our human history. It clearly has been a difficult experience collectively for the human race. Yeah, but we are not slaves to that history. Amen. We are not slaves to some tragedy in the past. We can and must rise above it. And I love that out of this story, we get the birth of Christ. Yeah, beautiful. Okay, so chapter 39 of Genesis has Joseph being a servant of Potiphar, who's an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian. 
And it's important to note that the Lord is with him. But this is the story of Potiphar and his wife and the temptation. And then Joseph is cast into prison. 40 is where Joseph's in prison. He interprets the dreams of Pharaoh's servants, the butler and the baker. And then 41 is the final chapter of this week's Come Follow Me. And this is where uh, the dreams of Pharaoh. So Pharaoh is troubled. He has this dream where he's just so concerned. And the butler, who is now free, says, I remember this guy in prison. His name is Joseph. I think he can help you. And Joseph is freed from prison, comes to Pharaoh, interprets the dreams. And we have the beginning of this food storage program, because we're going to have seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, and Joseph is the one who foretells it. So once again, he's sitting in the role of a seer. He sees something that the Pharaoh doesn't see. So that's kind of an overview of these chapters, which are probably the best-known story of the Bible, one of the best-known stories, right? Yep. And we see Joseph rising. He's thrown into Potiphar's house. He rises to become next in line next to Potiphar himself. And then he's thrown into prison and he becomes the chief guard's servant. He's running the prison, at least a good portion of it, because he's trusted and he's blessed and he's prospered. So God prospers Joseph even in harsh and demanding circumstances. The Lord was with him which will allow him to save not only his family, but basically the whole world. Now in our day today, we need to know this history because now we are Joseph. I'm so honored to call myself a descendant of Joseph, but to understand that we have been placed in the position of saving our family and the world. Excellent. I love that. So before we get into the details of the story of Genesis 39, I want to talk a little bit about verse 6. And this is back to Joseph is a seer, even in the backstory of the Bible, meaning in the Hebrew text. Clearly, he's a seer in the Book of Mormon. Clearly, he's a seer in the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. Look at verse 6 of Genesis 39. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not aught he had, save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored. In the Hebrew, Yippe Mare describes Joseph as fair of form or fair of visage is a way to look at it, and then fair of mare or sight or appearance. And if you remember when we talked about more and this oracle or the tree of vision, I see this as a possible connection between Joseph being fair of sight and the tree that is mentioned in the vision of the patriarchs, Genesis 12, verse 6, the oak of the tree called Moreh. Although the King James text says that Abram approached the plain of Moreh, we talked about the Hebrew, that it states that he approached the Elon of Moreh, or the tree of the teacher, or the tree of the oracle giver. So the way I read this in the description of Joseph is that Joseph is going to be an oracle giver, a teacher, and a restorer to the house of Israel in this narrative. I think that's a good way to read this. In this description of who he is, he is a goodly person, well-favored. He is fair of form, but he's also fair of sight or seeing. That's who he is. And that's my reading of verse 6. That's the way I'm going to take it. And with this, it throws a lot of light on this story, because if you're a seer, it's probably going to strengthen you to withstand the temptations that he's about to have. Joseph knows unto whom much is given, much is required. And now he's in a, put in a position that's really uncomfortable for him, because it's Potiphar's wife who is making the advances. And it would have been so easy to succumb. 
And I think he and she could have kept it from Potiphar. That's how influential and powerful Joseph was. But Joseph knew he would disappoint God. So I want to just show, I think it's worthwhile to point out some strategies that Joseph had to avoid the temptation. In verse 8, he says he refused. He just wouldn't. He refused. And I think part of that implies a predetermined commitment to not sin. I'm not going to put myself in those positions. He's thought about this, and he's predecided. I am not going to do it. So he refuses. And then in verse 2, there's a reason he refuses. I think our children need to have an, a reason for the commandments. I love that in the Book of Mormon, it states that God gave them commandments after making known unto them the plan of salvation, meaning we've got to have a reason to hold on to the commandments. And Joseph has a reason. He says, I am not going to break God's trust in me. I believe Joseph is the seer that Mike is talking about, even in Egypt, even in Potiphar's house. Therefore, God has placed a great deal of confidence in Joseph. And Joseph says, I'm not going to lose that confidence. I'm not going to. I think of Joseph Smith, where he says, I knew that I had a vision, and I knew that God knew it, and I wasn't going to deny it. No matter how difficult it was, I wasn't going to deny it because I wasn't going to disappoint God. I think that's important for all of our children to have a reason for the commandments, to say, this is why we should not do that. And I love that Joseph has a reason for his action. But then I love verse 10. It says, he hearkened not unto her to lie with her or to be with her. Notice that I'm just not going to be alone with her. Here's a strategy here to say, I'm not going to put myself in a situation where I might sin. That's brilliant. You know what? This is the stagecoach. This is. Going on the road, and are you going to ride on the edge of the cliff? And the good stagecoach driver's like, I'm not going to get near the cliff because I'm trying to be safe, right? So I love that strategy. I'm not going to be with her. And if you really add to, notice that in verse 11, when she caught him, it says, there was none of the men of the house therein. So he's very strategic. I'll only be with her if there's someone else present. I'm going to avoid even the temptation. So he strategizes to say, I'm going to avoid the temptation. I'm going to make sure other people are with me. I'm not going to be with her. This is the person who says, look, I have a problem, and I'm going to avoid the situation that might lead to the problem. So perhaps, you know, we suggest to someone, don't take your phone to bed. How about you leave your phone in the kitchen at night? Don't put yourself in a situation where you might fall. And then the last one in verse 12, Joseph, when when she grabs him and she grabs his coat, he just got himself out. Sometimes we just need to run. Sometimes we just need to get ourselves out of that situation. So I love those strategies. I think they're very helpful when you're facing a tempting situation. Preconceive and determine you're not going to do it. Know why you're not going to do it. Do your very best to avoid the tempting situation. And then if you are in there, just get out, just run out. I think Joseph can be a great lesson that can be shared in a family just to talk about the general principle of avoiding temptation, Bryce. I think you nailed it. I mean, that's really 
a really good lesson, and it really is juxtaposed right next to the 38th chapter where Judah does the opposite. And I think whoever put this in there is trying to invite you to consider this. We're looking at light and darkness, and we're comparing and we're contrasting. And I think it's a brilliant construction, but sometimes we read this and go, oh, why is 38 in there? So I think that's that's really important. They put him in verse 20 in the Hasohar, and later when they pull him out, they're going to call it a dungeon, and that word is going to be a different word. That's going to be the same word that's used for the pit that the brothers throw him in. And so I like to teach this with the hero's journey, that Joseph is descending, just like Sarah did earlier, he's descending into Mitzrayim, he's descending into Egypt, and then he goes into the habur, the pit, the pit of despair. He goes into the prison, the Sohar, but he has the stone, the Zohar. I think that's going on too. I think there's there's some puns, but the image I think that we want to portray is this idea that Joseph is in a pit because after he, and I call it doing the Heisman, where he puts his hand out and says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And he kind of pushes her away. She accuses him of trying to, quote, mock her in verse 17. And so Potiphar casts him into prison. He's put into prison in verse 20. It says, Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were bound, and he was there in prison. So sometimes our righteous actions do cause us to suffer at the hands of others. Absolutely. Because I'm righteous, I end up in prison like Joseph did. But again, the point here is that the Lord was with Joseph in that prison. Yeah. He doesn't change his circumstances. He changes him. Yeah. And within that prison— Joseph rises and becomes a useful tool in the hands of the Lord. Clearly, he's making the Lord's name known, and he's earned the trust of the keeper of the guard. Yeah. And everything that he has, he puts into Joseph's hands, just like Potiphar. Do you see that pattern? Pharaoh's going to do it. The keeper of the prison's going to do it. Potiphar did it. And the point is, if you keep the covenant, the Lord will bless you in the circumstances in which he finds you. Bryce, I like that it says that the Lord was was with him. Chapter 39, verse 23, it says, The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand, because the Lord was with him. And that which he did, the Lord made it prosper. So the Lord's in the story in Genesis, but it's not in your face the way it is with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then once again, we're back to the Book of Mormon. I'm so grateful for the Book of Mormon that this man's a seer. And so this is the story where he's interpreting dreams. The butler and baker are in prison because verse 1 tells us of chapter 40 that they've offended the Pharaoh. And so they come to Joseph and say, hey, we've had these dreams, and Joseph's going to interpret them. And I think most of us know this story, right? There's a butler, there's a baker. The butler has a dream basically about being restored to his butlership. The baker has a dream about being eaten. And the bread on top of his head is being eaten. So Joseph interprets both of them, and he says to the butler, you're going to be restored. You're going to go back to Pharaoh's service. And then he's quite bold to the baker and says, your head's going to be chopped off. You're going to be killed by Pharaoh. And both of those things happen. It's a rough story. The only thing he did say to the butler, he says, Verse 14, but think on me when it shall be well with thee, and show kindness, I pray thee, unto me, and make mention of me unto Pharaoh, and bring me out of this house. Because you know I'm here innocently. I did not, I don't deserve to be here. 
Hook me up. Remember Hook me, me up. Yeah. And he doesn't. Unfortunately, the last verse of chapter 40, yet did not the butler remember Joseph, but forget him for two years he forgot him. Which now leads us into chapter 41, which I think is interesting. If the butler's going to forget you, Joseph, the Lord says, I won't. I will trouble Pharaoh, and that will remind the butler to get you out. I just, I think the Lord is simply saying, He's going to be with us, and He's going to help us, and He's going to pull us out of that pit. I love that. So, chapter 41, the Pharaoh has a dream, and, and eventually the butler's going to come and remember Joseph and tell him, hey, I know this guy, he's in prison, and so they're going to bring him out of the dungeon, that's verse 14, and that's the same word for pit. And so he's brought out of the pit, and from here on out, there's some really interesting symbolism that I want to talk about. So in chapter 41, verse 14, Joseph is shaved, that's what it says in the verse, And the root of that word denotes nakedness. Then he is clothed. He's got a few series of changing of clothing. And the changing of clothing in the narrative is going to represent a change of status. And so clothing has been a constant theme in the story up to this point. I mean, if you remember this embroidered robe that he has or what the text calls a coat of many colors. And so the change of clothing is going to signify that something new in the story is about to begin. And I'm going to argue that the changing of clothing, the linen or the white garments, the receiving of the ring, the chain that he's going to receive, the chariot, as well as receiving a new name, that all of these ideas are connected. That being washed and clothed and anointed and brought into God's presence is connected with visionary experiences and visionary men of the Old Testament time period, and that Joseph is sitting in this tradition, that Joseph, and it's in code, but it's in here, that these things are happening. So if you go to verse 37, after Joseph interprets, we read, the thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom the spirit of God is? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, for as much as God has showed thee all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. Thou shalt be over my house. That's verse 40. And then it also says in verse 40, only in the throne will I be greater. So then he sets him over all the land of Egypt in verse 41. He takes off his ring puts it on his hand. That's a signet ring, which is going to mean that Joseph can now sign documents and represent the political aspect of the kingdom of Egypt as if he were the Pharaoh. That's important. And then it says that he arrayed him in vestures of fine linen. That's going to be white garments. He puts a gold chain around his neck. He gives him the second chariot. And then there's this command that everyone bow the knee. And then it says in verse 44, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without thee shall no man lift up his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Then in verse 45, he's given a new name, and he's given a wife who's connected to the priesthood. And then verse 46 says that Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, I just want to pause right here and talk about Asenath. I mean, she clearly had to have been a special someone to have been married to a person such as Joseph. She's just kind of dropped here, right here in the middle of verse 45 of Genesis 41. And then the narrator just goes on. 
And so Hugh Nibley is pulling all these threads and he's putting them together with these legends of Asenath and the image of Deseret. He's translating stuff going on in Egyptian and he's connecting these ideas that Asenath is a really important character and she's just kind of dropped here. And so there are times when I read things outside of the biblical text and I just say, this is just too much of a coincidence. We have to talk about this. I'm not certainly not declaring doctrine, but I'm just looking at these different angles to try to get a fuller picture of who Joseph is and who is his wife. And so there's this whole backstory to who she is. She's connected with the land of Israel being a land of milk and honey. She's connected to Deseret, some of the stuff going on in the Book of Mormon with bees. I think she's also connected with creation. And I also see this as an association with Heavenly Mother. So in Hugh Nibley's book, Abraham in Egypt, he's citing ancient sources and ancient traditions about Asenath. Hugh Nibley even offers this interpretation relating the name Asenath to a pious group of desert sectaries known as the Essenes. That's Hugh Nibley. And Origen of Alexandria notes that the Essene itself means leader of bees. Philo even references this where he talks about the Essenes being keepers of the bee. Hugh Nibley ties Asenath to this visionary experience where she meets an angel, and in the context of meeting this angel, she is told to get some honeycomb, and she eats it, and the honey is white like the dew of heaven. And so, having eaten the honeycomb, the bride is told by the angel, the flowers of life will now spring from thy flesh, thy limbs will flourish, fresh strength will fill you, and you will never grow old. And then it says that the angel rubbed honeycomb on Asenath, and numbers of bees issue forth from it, all white as snow, and they alit upon her. And she has a blessing, a blessing from God that is the female counterpart to the male blessing that Joseph is receiving in the 49th chapter. Hugh Nibley writes, the bee is before all creatures, the sponsor, inspiration, and guide of the great trek. As a creature of the pre-existent or the world before the flood, and all but the sole survivor of the great catastrophes that desolated the earth, the bee is the first to arrive on the scene and start things going again in the new world. I mean, think about it. Think what bees do, how we wouldn't even have life without them because they pollinate everything. They're going and doing all this work for the pollination to make it so that we have crops. And so Hunibly continues, he says, in the first of all migrations, Adam and Eve were accompanied and guided by the bees as they moved from the garden into the outer world. The bees brought with them a primordial creative divine power, and their honey, made by the bees of paradise, is the food of heaven. And so this is connected to Eve. She was given the greatest blessing of all, for she was accompanied by her friends from the garden with their honey. The bees followed her out of the garden, and the busy bees whose beneficent labors among the plants and trees made it possible to renew the life that she knew in the former world is associated with Eve. And so I find these connections fascinating between Asenath and Eve and the bee and the symbol of the honey. And we'll see the symbol of honey and milk. They're oftentimes in the Hebrew Bible, once we get out of Genesis, they're going to be used and they're going to be echoes of the land. And the land is, in my view, often associated with the feminine principle. In fact, when we die in a lot of ancient texts, 
we go back to the mother earth. She's the womb from which we go back to, and she's the womb from which we come out of. We come out of our mother, and then we return to the mother, in this instance, the earth. And so the land of milk and honey is associated with fertility and the divine feminine. And Hugh Nibley ties, he says, what ties everything together in his mind is Asenath. She is the queen of the Deseret Hive. Then and now, he says, as the mother of Ephraim and Manasseh by Joseph, whom she carried in the midst of a swarm of bees, bringing her honey and covering her person to do reverence. So I hope that's okay that we just spent a couple minutes talking about Asenath. I mean, she clearly had to have been a special someone to have been married to a person such as Joseph a man who is such a forgiving individual and a leader who is able to save so many people due to his power of seership. I love it. So let's get back to the story of Joseph. We were talking about how he received clothes of glory and he was anointed, received a new name and was washed. I really see this as a type. We would refer you to the show notes where you can read for yourself extra biblical literature, everything from second and third Enoch to second Ezra. So we have even the ascension of Isaiah or even the hymn of the pearl. I love the hymn of the pearl. And it was a Christian text that many Christians read in the first couple centuries. And it's all connected to this idea. And I see this as a type. I think more than the temple. And if you've been to the temple, it's in the Bible. It's all in there. It's all happening. But more than an ascension, I think Joseph is representing a person a type of Christ. That's right. Now, that symbolism is very significant because Pharaoh, as the chief ruler, is a symbol of God, the eternal father, and Joseph now becomes a symbol of Jesus. Jesus, also age 30, comes into his position of Messiah. Jesus was given the ring of the Father to sign for him. We call that the divine investiture of authority, that Jesus can sign for the Father. And this ascent, this rise to power, is symbolic of the role Jesus plays in our life under the Father's direction. That Pharaoh turns to Joseph to save the land. Do you remember when the famine starts and they start starving and they go to Pharaoh? Hey, we're out of food. What should we do? Do you remember what Pharaoh does? He says, go unto Joseph and whatever he saith to you, do. You've got to see us saying to the father, where do I go for salvation? What do I do to be fed? And the father says, go see Christ. And whatever Christ tells you to do, you do. Joseph is set up here to save not only his family, but the entire world. He saves Egypt. His visionary sight allows them to make the precautions to save Egypt. And therein is Jesus. Do you see that? Jesus under the Father is the one that will save us from starvation. Bryce, I think it's a really cool type because he gathers up in verse 48 all the seed or all the food. He's gathering the, verse 49, the corn, as it says, as the sand of the sea. And that's what Abinadi talks about, right? The seed of Christ are those that receive him. And verse 56 it was over all the face of the earth. Now, I don't take verse 56 that Madagascar had a famine. I'm reading this from the perspective of the author. All the face of the earth was in famine, but it's a beautiful type, a type of Christ. That's right. Now, fast forward. 
and I mean this tenderly and respectfully, but today Joseph's descendants are being called upon to do the same thing. It's almost like in our day, the father is handing Joseph's descendants his ring and saying, gather up the corn and save them from a famine. So we've got dual symbolism here. Joseph is a type of Christ, and Joseph's seed becomes a type of Christ. It is the tribe of Joseph through Manasseh and Ephraim that are going to save the world. We're going to go out and preach the gospel and bring that food to a starving world like Christ saved us from spiritual destruction, like Joseph saved the Egyptians from starvation. And now the seed of Joseph is going to save the world from a spiritual destruction and a spiritual starvation. You've got to see Jesus in this story. Then you've got to go to the next step and say, now I see why there is a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I understand why President Nelson has been begging us to be part of restored Israel. We are Joseph, and we have to, in that type and shadow of Christ, live the kind of life that Jesus and Joseph lived so that we can save the world. Boy, this is a powerful connection. And again, I said this at the beginning of this year. Do you wonder why we study the Old Testament just as often as we study the Book of Mormon every four years? I think this is one of the reasons why. We have to understand the legacy of Abraham and the legacy of Joseph. And we have to understand our part in that. What Joseph did in Egypt is a pattern of what Christ will do and what the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints will do. Bryce, I love this as what I call prophetic midrash. You see, if Mormon had his hands on this stuff, at the end of this chapter, he would say, and thus we see, and then he would say the things you're saying, and we don't have that. And so the authors are inviting you to consider these things. And frankly, Jesus is lost in the Old Testament. They've lost kind of that connection. And so there were a lot of people who read this and didn't see Jesus. But then early Christians read this and they're like, how can you not see Jesus? And so as someone who loves Jesus and the Book of Mormon, I mean, we have to point this stuff out. So my testimony, Bryce, is rooted in this idea that Joseph is everything you say, that he is this beautiful type. I think this is beautiful. It's beautiful. Now, just let me leave you with this last caution. We can't let it get to our head. We've got to remain as Joseph was. Being called to fulfill some great duty is a call of responsibility, not a, I'm better than you, I'm holier than thou. If Joseph had acted that way, there's no way he would have received the authority that he did. I love when Joseph comes in to interpret Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh said, this is verse 15, Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I have dreamed a dream, and there is none that can interpret it. I have heard of thee that thou canst understand a dream to interpret it. Thou, you're the great one. And what did Joseph do? Typical of Christ, do you remember when the rich young ruler came to him and said, good master, what shall I do to be saved? And Jesus immediately turned around and said, God is great. Joseph does the same thing. Pharaoh says, thou canst understand a dream. 
And Joseph very quickly answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. I think part of our responsibility is to do that same thing. Jesus was very quick to honor the Father. Jesus was very quick to glorify God. Joseph was very quick to glorify God. We have to be the ones that say, you know what? It's not about me. It's about God. God is able to save the world, and I'm happy to be his voice and his hands. So when you are called to be Joseph, remember that beautiful moment. Instead of taking the praise of saving Egypt, say to yourself, it is not in me. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Of that, we testify. Thank you for joining with us. This has been a tremendous week. Thank you for your time. We'll see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.